Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where every episode I'll dive deep into the creative minds of your new favorite songwriters, band leaders, and sonic explorers who, like me, have dedicated their lives to traveling the world, telling their strange stories to anyone who'll listen. My name is Zach Lupiton. Let's go. This week on the show, I bring you a conversation I had with one of my songwriting heroes, Gary Loris, one of the founding members of the Roots Rock Americana favorites, the Jayhawks, who launched out of Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1985 and recently celebrated the release of their 11th studio album called XOXO this July. Look, any band that has stuck together for a generation clearly has kept a fervent fan base intrigued somehow, and it makes me think how hard it really is to keep that spark going throughout the years as a band leader, a songwriter, and as a music maker for fans who move on quickly. I admit I can get pretty attached to the albums that my favorite artists put out when I was 16, 18, 21, and then later on when their music changes, I turn on them. I never listen to them again. And then sometimes I have to realize, wait a second, what if a band like the Jayhawks is still putting out amazing music 30 years in? Indeed, when I finally dove into their newest record, I found that the Jayhawks aren't softening into old age at all, even as they've become respected Americana elder statesmen. And yes, Gary and the crew might be a bit older than my dad at this point, except I think their electric guitars are louder and better than ever on this record, including songs like This Forgotten Town, which has stayed at the top of the Americana single charts for months, and I've heard it nonstop on Americana radio. All of this made me want to step back and look where I've come from. I suppose when it comes to Dust Bowl Revival, I've managed to keep a band together for over 12 years. When I first put up that hopeful Craigslist ad which gathered brass and string players together, I never would have dreamt that we'd still be booking shows and making albums with these same guys who responded to that same ad a decade plus later. Most of us are married now. There are babies on the way. We've played in 13 countries and put out seven records that have been listened to over 10 million times including a strange home recording we made this year called Queen Quarantine, which we recorded in closets and living rooms in five different zip codes across two states, with me mixing it myself on a dusty eight-year-old laptop, which I'm not great at. This silly song was about new lockdown routines and drinking mojitos in the shower and dancing in the driveway. But you know what? It was personal, and it was homemade, and there was something about that that mattered to people. And if I look at the numbers, which I hate doing... I can see that that song has been listened to more than almost all of the songs we made on our expensive shiny new album, which was done in a plush studio with an amazing producer and pro mastering and a massive expensive publicity campaign with write-ups in Rolling Stone and international radio play, and I can't tell if I'm proud of that fact or mad at the continuing roar of indifference that most artists get despite putting beautiful art into the world every year and nearly going bankrupt doing so. But the real reason we keep putting out new music it's because we haven't gotten it right yet. And Gary Loris, he's been making music with the Jayhawks since the winter of the year I was born. And as those fresh-faced, big-haired, leather-clad boys plugged in their guitars for the first time on that frozen Minnesota night, I bet they never would have dreamt that 11 studio albums would be coming and there would be a star with their name on it on the side of First Avenue in Minneapolis. 
and maybe it's not a Hollywood star, and maybe they've never fully broken in to the mainstream. But you know what? To at least one town with a fabled music history, these guys have withstood the test of time, and the Jayhawks matter. After some hard years that took Gary away from the supportive Twin City Hub to other ventures, the band's core group of Loris, Mark Perlman, Karen Grotberg, and Timo Reagan are now happily back in their original Minneapolis home base, grateful to still have a devoted fan base waiting patiently for them to be able to tour again. I'm glad I could catch up with Gary, and please stick around to the end of the episode to hear him share an intimate acoustic version of the Jayhawks tune, Living in a Bubble. That's it for me for now. You can go to theshowontheroad.com to hear all our previous episodes. And if you want to leave us a review on iTunes and tell us about the bands that you discovered on here, please do so. It would mean a lot to me. And if you go to dustbowlrevival.com, you can support my band. Today, there are no fees on all merchandise. Lastly, if you're feeling like a friend and you want to donate to this podcast, go to PayPal, Z-N-Lupitin, L-U-P-E-T-I-N, that's my last name, at gmail.com. You can donate directly to the show like that. Thanks again for listening. Here he is now, Gary Loris of the Jayhawks. and I'm part of a group called the Jayhawks from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minneapolis, St. Paul, technically. And you've been there since the 70s, right? I've lived here since 73. I moved away in February of 2017, and now I've moved back as of just like a month ago, technically. Where'd you go in between? I was in North Carolina for a while, and then I went to upstate New York for a bit. What brought you back? Um, I missed it. Well, your band is all there, right? Yes, that is part of it, too. It's just, uh, yeah, it's my home. I, I experimented in going away, and it didn't work for me. But, yeah, it certainly makes rehearsals and getting together, although we can't do much of that now. But, yeah, it makes the logistics a lot better, a lot easier. And you guys have been together in some form since what 85 or so right yes 85 february of 85 no one really talks about it but you guys probably are one of the most uh long-standing quote-unquote americana bands in the business you know i mean that's a long time to have a band really stay together in some form i know yeah we kind of shut it down and i decided maybe it was time to to do other things in 2005 and came crawling back when I realized uh, this is really what uh, I'm lucky to, we are lucky to have the longevity we have. And uh, yeah, so uh, I still like to do some other things, but in general, it's, uh, the Jayhawks don't get in the way of me doing anything. So um, yeah, we're we're lucky to, to have what we have. And I think there was a time where maybe I didn't appreciate it as much as I do now. I thought it was uncool to be together that long. I thought, you know, the cool bands were just there, and then they were gone, and everybody 
I'd be like, where did they go? They were so cool. And, um, no, we just went away and, uh, and, uh, and found that it's actually very cool to have longevity, as long as you're not just cranking out playing the casinos and playing your oldies, but actually still creating music. And as long as we can do that, I think we'll still be around as long as we can hobble up onto the stage. Yeah, do you find that there's some injuries that prevent you from truly rocking out in the same way as you get older? <laughs> uh, well, we've never been, uh, you know, the Clash or the Stooges or something. We've never been like a big physical band where sprawling all over. And I mean, there was a time where I jumped into the, I used to jump in the audience and have them carry me around and get out and and with my guitar and and that's still you know that's not saying that would never happen but we've always been slightly more of shoegazers you know and um about the songs and the music and not so much the big uh, rock show so the the aches and pains of getting older haven't really gotten in the way of playing sometimes it gets in the way of touring of traveling you know getting in out out of vehicles, you know, plant flying and the wear and tear of just all the stuff that people don't think about that leads up to the show. Because most people go, why wouldn't you want to get on a bus and tour across the country, you know? It's a dream come true, and they have never done it. And, and, yeah. uh, and they see what it's like to be on stage, and they see a tour bus, but they don't know the day in and day out grind of just getting from one place to another uh, and playing one place every day and uh, although there's an appeal to it uh, the the amount of time we like to do it in one stretch is is definitely gone down what do you think the hardest couple years were where you toured nonstop? was it around the uh, maybe the rainy day music record or because I know you know you guys were playing late night shows you guys were everywhere around then that's where I first discovered you and that that's that album is just so classic to me it feels like it could exist in any decade really and uh, I'm curious if 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 there was a point where you know you you started getting crazy a little bit on the road because I feel like I I read something where you said that you know, at a certain point, your mind starts to disconnect from your body when you're touring so much and you're not really a real person anymore. Well, you're a real person, but you're a different different entity. I mean, I think the heavy touring really started in 92, where we went for Hollywood Town Hall and, and through Tomorrow the Greengrass, and um, those were living on the road and at least six months of touring, if not more six to nine months of touring a year, and then uh, hit Sound of Lies, and there was a problem with the record company suing its the, the conglomerate it was under, and we didn't tour much then. Then we picked back up Smile, Sound of Lies, and then took a hiatus. And uh, we, you know, we toured a lot on the Paging Mr. Proust record, too, but I think we just... Uh, and what happens is you... You break, you know, the first couple of weeks, maybe you're, you know, like, um, you're still kind of getting used to touring. And, and after about two weeks, you start feeling only comfortable when you're on the bus or on the stage and you live in this cocoon. 
and it it uh, it's almost alien to be out there in the normal world, and uh, and that's what happens. It becomes your little bubble, and uh, oh, that reminds me, I'm supposed to play a song, aren't I? I better tune up my guitar. Um, <laughs> you can wait to the end on that. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's 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 kind of a cool thing. But it's almost like you're gone to outer space, like an astronaut. Um, usually, before you tour, you're already your mind is already out. You're already gone because you're thinking about leaving, and that was always the hardest part. The week before you leave, trying to get everything ready and knowing you're leaving your loved ones, and then coming back, it's like re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, where you. Uh, you're so used to moving every day. It's very strange to be back in um, in a home and staying in one place. It sort of ruins you in a way from being able to stay in one place for a long period of time. It also there's a a known fact among travelers and musicians that um, after you pass that kind of five six week period on the road. You really have to reacquaint yourself with your your significant other uh-huh. when you, you come back because it's you know you've you've just been gone so long in a whole different world while they've been going through the their normal routine. Yeah, I think um, this tour that my band Dust Bowl Revival did uh, in Europe was pretty bold pretty and misguided. Um, misguided. In, well, it was like. It was one of those things where you, when you have a, a tour that that is going throughout mainland Europe, and it's like, well, we might as well just add the UK too, since we're over there, you know. And then you're realizing that you're gone like a month and a half straight in foreign countries. You know, a lot of times you're spending way more money than you're making because you're having a good time. You know, you're eating good food and <laughs> drinking all night. Yeah, it's not touring is not good for a relationship, although uh, you know. It's, it's, you're talking to a guy who's been divorced three times. Yeah, it's not great. Um, however, I do know certain people, that's how it's worked for them to stay together so long. Usually I've met a couple bus drivers, you know, for tour buses, and they're like, that's why me and my missus are together so long, because I'm gone all the time. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know what that says exactly about your relationship, but if it works for you, <laughs> it works for you, you know? Well, this has been the first time in my relationship and I've been married a couple years now uh, but you know it'll be seven years that I'm with my wife in a relationship this is the first time in our whole you know time together that I'm actually around for months at a time you know and we've been like surprisingly okay Mm -hmm. most of the time but there's just those moments where you look at each other across the table and you're like why are we doing this again tonight you know <laughs> like what are we doing here yeah it, it, the road definitely uh, you know changes you and uh uh hopefully it doesn't uh, i can i can see why uh dylan has that never-ending tour because yeah, of course yeah. of course he's touring a little bit uh, cushier than you and I, you or i would and uh, i can see the appeal of it if you're able to stay in nice hotels and not have a you know you might be able to stay in a town more than one day and you have a complete support system. I can see the appeal to that, but most of us are not touring that way. So uh, 
Yeah, we have become more selective about where we tour and how we tour. It was after the Paging Mr. Proust record that we looked after looked at our yearly income after touring so much and realized we had spent so much money on the bus and the driver, and we played good shows on the weekends, but in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, maybe you're the fill-ins and you're not paying. And you look at how much you've been gone and what you made, and we made a conscious decision to change the way we toured. So now we we most likely, when, when it will be possible, I hope, um, group three, four, five shows together, fly somewhere, maybe rent a vehicle, backline, bring our guitars, our pedals, or anything else that's uh, that's uh, important to us and uh, necessary, and then fly home, you know, and not be gone more than a week or so. And we found it's actually more lucrative and uh, keeps us sane. I've always been curious if, if the bus route is more affordable in the end. And, and it feels like it's bad for the environment too like with all the gas and the idling outside the venues like does it actually save you money on a longer tour on a longer tour yes but you you can't go out for a couple weeks on a bus you have to go at least a month to make it feasible and then and usually more um where it starts balancing out and of course at our level we found that because we wanted to, it wasn't a vacation, we wanted to make money, we would tend to not have hotel rooms except on days off. And we didn't have very many days off. I like playing. If I'm out there, it's not a vacation. I'd rather play. So maybe we'd have one day off a week, maybe two. And so pretty much you're living on the bus, showering at the venue. Um, And... uh, and that's the only way we were able to make it profitable, I think, in any way. Um, of course, we wouldn't get the fanciest bus, you know, and we didn't have a big crew. And, you know, you can make some money, but it's uh, you definitely have to be smart about it. There's a song on the new record, uh, XOXO, um, that I obviously this song was written before we were all shut down and living in our little bubbles, but it's called Living in a Bubble, and it felt very timely, and I found myself sort of smiling listening to it last night because we've created our own little microcosms um, during this time where you can venture basically to the grocery store and, and, and out and about for a little bit, but you create your whole universe in your bubble at home during quarantine, and there's that that line you say where you're, you know, you're living out of time, you know, and we mm-hmm. almost don't remember what day it is right now. And I'm curious how that song um, came to be and if it has more relevance to you right now. Definitely has more relevance. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It, yeah, I, I'm not that present that I could uh, foresee the future know, and, and know what was going to transpire this year, but... Um, uh, it was just a commentary on the uh, our connection with our devices, kind of the big brother monitoring the data, reaping data being the new currency, our addiction to our uh, to social media and the news cycle, the twenty four hour news cycle, and how I don't think that's very healthy for people. I think uh, 
It's like uh, any of these, the devices, technology, news. It's like alcohol in uh, moderation. It's good. Um, if you're drinking too much, it's bad. And uh, I think the 24-hour news cycle just fans this flame of fear that is, it's, you know, it's, it's legit that, that there's, uh, you should be informed, and it's legitimate that there are um, uh, a lot of awful things happening out there, but to watch it over and over and every, every angle they can take to, to they're in the business of uh, um, ads and making money. And, and uh, so I, th- I as, as many other musicians and artists that I know, we isolate. I mean, we've talked about, I've talked about this with my friends that this is not other than people dying and, um, uh, not being able to get together, uh, our day-to-day life in our house is not that much different because we tend to be isolators anyway. Our, I think cre- creative people in many ways isolate. That's the way to get, um, you, uh, that's one way to actually get it done, you know. Um, um, so that is, uh, we're kind of experienced in, I'm not saying that life is all fine and the same, but um, I was not one to go out all the time. My friends I know who are very social are having a much harder time with this because they're used to going out all the time and and hanging out with people. Uh, so it, it's a different experience for, for each person, but uh, I've certainly have experience with that and the depression and anxiety that isolation can cause has been part of my life for a long time. Signal on the morning train I'm alone with my thoughts As they run through my brain Big brother's got a hold on me I never know who to believe Living in a bubble able to overcome you know some opiate abuse problems also and, and yes. it's amazing it's amazing to see artists that can really write songs on both sides of that chasm you know because when you're when you're in it and then you're near through it and I'm curious how your writing style has changed as you've gotten older and you've gotten um, you know a hold of some of your vices. My demons, yeah. Um, well, when I got a treatment, they told me don't. I had friends say don't write a record right away. I mean, they tell you not to do much anyway. Don't get in a relationship, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you don't. You don't want to write that record right away. Everything's you're in that pink cloud, as they call it, and every you know you want to talk about. I know when I toured and was on stage and solo, I talked a lot about addiction and. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think it's really changed my writing style, uh, from when I, when I was younger or when I was high versus now, I've always written kind of the same way, stream of consciousness, um, inspiration first, craftsmanship later, um, procrastinating like we all do, um, working on the lyrics last cause they're the hardest, um, 
I mean, I tried different methods of writing, cutting and pasting, writing to drum beats, uh, uh, completely using using different instruments to write on, but I still basically am the same writer I was, you know, when I first started writing. That's cool. I mean, I think there's a song also that I don't think a lot of people may hear right away on this new record called, um, was it Hypocrite's Lament? The very mm-hmm. last uh, kind of bonus track. It's a beautiful duet um, with you and Karen. And that idea that we're all um, wondering if anyone's going to want us anymore, if anyone's going to want to hear what we have to say, um, plays into my sort of main uh, psychological vice, which I think is the imposter syndrome, you know, and wondering if, you know, you still have the fire you had when you were 21, when you were 25, when, you know, you thought you could be the best songwriter and the most vibrant rock star on stage ever and then now you know the knees get a little creaky and <laughs> you start to question if you have the boiling cauldron inside your mind to produce songs that will change the world or get anyone to pay attention because there's so much to listen to there's so much to see you're competing against everything all the time um and i'm i wonder if if there was something in that song that s- spoke to that a bit or if you have ever had the imposter syndrome yourself you know you're only as good as your last song and i think that's partially why what keeps me going you know it's also an antidote to depression because it's it gives you a purpose you wake up in the morning and instead of like oh i'm gonna go eat and then i'm gonna do this again just like yesterday if you create something from nothing or from something inside you you feel like you 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 have a purpose a meaning, even if it's just for yourself. Yeah, do I believe that we're going to now become the, now at our age, become the biggest band in the world? No. I at, at one point, I did think we were going to be bigger than we are, um, and now I've accepted our place and I've mostly appreciate it. You know, certainly would like to go up a rung, but um, I think as far as. I'm still trying to write the best songs I ever had. I think I feel like I'm way carrying the flag of um, elder statesmen as far as musicians go who can do some of their best work as they get older. In rock, that's not so much the case. I can't think of anybody really who's made their best records at my age or even 50 or 40. Most rock bands peak in their 20s, 30s, you know, and then they start repeating themselves uh, However, I think if you're just writing for yourself first, um, and even if it's not good, but you've done something um, each day, if you can, uh, that's enough to keep me going. And uh, I also think that our lack of huge success, moderate success, yes, has kept me a little hungry, you know, and... uh, um, and I started late, you know, I didn't write my songs until I was in my 20s and wasn't in a band, and into the Jayhawks, in the Jacks till I was 30. So I still feel like I still might hit that song that's better than anything I've ever written. And um, that keeps me going. Just the same old story 
There's that line uh, in this New York Times um, review of uh, one of your records. I'm trying to uh, think smile. of Smile. Yeah, when he's like, what if you made a classic record and no one cared? No one cared. <laughs> I remember when it came out, I was so thrilled the New York Times actually ever finally paid us any attention. And the label and the producer were horrified by the articles. Like, this is not <laughs> what we want to hear. I'm like, hey, look, we're in the New York Times. <laughs> my, my favorite... Uh, headline for our group was written by a young intern at the LA Weekly who is now a like hugely su- like successful artist himself this guy named Moses Sumney <laughs> but at the time he was just like I think he was in college and he was writing an article and he knew our fiddle player and the headline of the article was Dust Bowl Revival doesn't rehearse <laughs> I'll tell you the the worst one I ever had for the Jayhawks that we ever got was uh, a local one of those weekly magazines in your city. It's called City Pages, and some guy wrote it was a preview for us playing, and it said the Jayhawks never thrill, never disappoint, and I was just like, that's the worst. <laughs> you're just in the middle, you know, uh, lukewarm. Everything, you know, good, not great, you know. I, we always bring that one up. Never thrill, never disappoint. I mean... It's a backhanded compliment. Is what sometimes it's nice to know what you're getting into. <laughs> I don't need to go too crazy at their show. I, don't, I can just sort of stand there and enjoy. Nah. I'd rather, I'd rather have somebody just say, these guys suck or these yeah. guys are great. Yeah, it's that gray area that it's tough to live in sometimes. Yeah, the biggest, the biggest constant disappointment for me is just total indifference. Yeah, we get that, especially out in L.A. Where do you guys play when you come out here? Uh, We play down by the river in a little shack shack down by the river. Um, We played, last time we played the Fonda, which I like. Uh, It's a pretty big room. Yeah, but we didn't fill it up. I mean, we will typically do five times as many people in New York City than we will in L.A. There's funny places like that, L.A., Nashville... Just the industry Matt town. Nashville's Sometimes the they're just kind of, yeah, yeah. They're done. It's, it's. Uh, but that's it. Okay. Now you guys, you guys should should just do the troubadour for like two nights. I like the troubadour. I, I mean, but I don't know if I want to play there the rest of my life. I mean, I hope it stays open. I hope we even have a chance to play there. Oh, I've had great great times there. Don't get me wrong. And speaking to you from West LA, where I am right now, you have a little uh, little West LA love in that song. Bitter um, pill, yeah. Bitter pill, yeah. On mm-hmm. and you know, sort of about young love and and how mercurial it is. And you know, she's here today; she won't be here tomorrow. Can you tell me a little bit about that song? Well, that song's a bit more about. Um, it's kind of a, a continuation of a song I had on this record called "Paging Mr. Proust," which was 
uh, two records ago. <clears throat> and uh, it's about someone who's never... It's always uh, going to be the next thing, always chasing that next fix of happiness, never really being happy with what they might have. I'm, I'm guilty of that. I'm sure most people have some of that, but it, it's kind of a comment on um, being in the moment and appreciating what you have as opposed to always thinking, well, I, once I find this next thing, then I'll be happy. Because then you get there, and then it's forever a chain of domino. You just keep going. And I speak from experience there. When you've been divorced three times, and I actually asked Steve Earle this in his tour bus, and he's, he's been, been divorced, divorced seven times. Seven times. <laughs> um, is writing a love song different when you've had that disappointment and that turmoil in your heart? Like, or is that the sort of fresh blossom of new love still as strong and as, you know, intense? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if I can answer that. I mean, it's, uh, I, 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 I don't know, really. I mean, I feel, maybe you start listening to yourself and uh, looking at what you're saying, listening to what you're saying, and you go, well, I've said that before, and look where I got, you know. So there's a little, you temper a bit with experience. Of course, you learn from your experiences, and uh, some more than others. I certainly have and have not. I have repeated things in the, uh, that I sh- thought I should have learned from. Uh, but... Um, yeah, I, I guess it's true. It has it, it has changed a little bit, and maybe that's why I've written songs now more about um, a person who doesn't uh, appreciate what they have and hasn't learned their lessons. Have you lived in West LA, long brown hair with things to lay upon a brown tent lightly by the sun? record personally I have written a little bit more uh, globally dealing with climate change and homecoming and uh, living in a bubble which is isolation and and uh, a social media obsession and news cycle so yeah I'm hoping hoping I'm not just always going to be writing about uh, the missing piece that I have to find or the person I lost or what went wrong but that's always going to be more interesting personal politics to me are, are going to be more interesting and more up my alley than commenting on on politics uh, and as, as much as some people do I mean some of my favorite love songs are the songs that are on the other side of the relationship where it starts to sour or starts to uh, break down and I feel like that's what makes uh, a guy like Bob Dylan or even the Beatles like have songs that can transcend uh, 
romance, really, you know, and so many of the songs on Rubber Soul for me um, kind of remind me a bit of, of the Jayhawks. Um, well, that's a compliment. The, the sort of, you know, the, the, the constant back and forth between the British invasion and um, them, them paying homage to American folk music and blues and, and soul and vice versa, where so many people were inspired by the Beatles and the Stones and the Birds. And um, I'm curious how your, your music growing up, you know, the music that you heard growing up, uh, really started to shape your songwriting? Well, I, I grew up complete Anglophile. I never, I listened only to British music um, and rock music. I mean, I totally obsessed with the Beatles and the Who and the Stones and the Kinks and then the Zombies and then into um, art rock. And then I got really into prog rock and yes. Uh, early Genesis, uh, Roxy Music, Eno, Bowie, all that stuff, and then um, moved into punk rock, which I couldn't really play. It wasn't I, I couldn't pull it off because I'm just not, I'm not a screamer or that raw. But I loved English punk rock, and from there, then it got into uh, so that was kind of my the bones for me. And then it was only in the early 80s that I kind of uh, discovered the Elvis Sun Sessions and start, that got me into, you know, bluegrass and country, old country and folk and uh, uh, soul and blues and funk. And, and so that kind of layered on top of the British thing. And I think that's why the Jayhawks, at least my contribution, contribution to the Jayhawks, sounds like it, it does because it's really... Uh, a pop British pop band with a lot of uh, uh, folk and um, country, ing- you know, a little spice, a little dash of it. But it's we're not a country band. We're, we never have been. We never will be. It's too hard to play country. We're not a blues band. We're not a bluegrass band. We're not a soul band. But um, we're a pop band, and but we incorporate. Um, the traditional music. I personally prefer British folk to American folk, but I, I love American folk also. But what I found when I discovered these uh, um, traditional music forms that it added depth to pop music because pop music can sometimes be a little light, you know, as far as content and and uh, meaning and uh, uh, soulfulness, for lack of a better word. So I found my attraction to. I found an attraction to the traditional music, but it was always just incorporated into what I think of us as a rock and a pop band. Well, you worked with, uh, you know, Ray Davies of the Kinks, who I think are another band that were slipping in and out of genres and defying, you know, what pop music could be, you know. Um, And he's a pretty difficult character, at least what I've read, but you guys seem to have a really cool working relationship. How did that work out? Yeah, I didn't find him difficult at all. I found him charming and very sweet guy. He certainly knows what he wants, and if he doesn't, he finds it. He, he's, he's kind of relentless. He's very uh, particular about his, um, even the way certain things are hit on symbols or um, delivery 
here and there. Uh, no, it was a, a great experience. I mean, I to work with one of my heroes and get to contribute and uh, you just get to know the person. It was nothing but great. If there were a artist that you could work with right now and collaborate on a record, who would it be? Oh, I'd still like to do something with Jeff Tweedy because we have worked together in the past and I think he and I, he's one musician that I can think of has a lot of the same influences uh, that would cover all the bases of things I'm kind of interested in. Um, I loved working with Jacob Dylan. Um, Jacob is a good friend of mine, and but Jacob's not... So, I don't know if either of them that well. I should say Jacob is not really one who co-writes with a lot of people. He's pretty much some people like doing it, some people don't. I was lucky to do do it once with him, and we came up with one of the, my favorite songs I was ever involved with. Going to be a darkness, but um, Nick Cave that'd be fun to work with Nick, um, Lucinda. Um, yeah, and you worked with with Tweety uh, as part of that Golden Smogs right. project, right? Mm-hmm. Is it difficult uh, working in a supergroup situation at times with all the egos flying around, or did everyone sort of really have a spirit of camaraderie and, and teamwork? Totally a spirit of camaraderie. We were we called ourselves a stupor group instead of a supergroup, but um, no, it was always because it was it was supposed to be friends having fun making music together. That was kind of the blueprint was never a career choice. It was never something we thought, we're going to do this a lot and we're going to take it out on the road all the time and we have to sell records. It was more like, it was kind of a support group. It seemed like the smog was always there for people when they needed them. If somebody was in a tough spot in their life or changing their direction or questioning something, it seemed like always it was just friends playing together. So... Uh, egos never got in the way in that band. Let's go down together. 3 a.m. tomorrow night. I'll take you over anything. Let's go out. Broad daylight in the street I'll take you anywhere That was Dan Murphy No, it was Dan Murphy from Soul Asylum, Craig Johnson from Run Westy Run, which was a Minneapolis band and also played with the Jayhawks. Mark Perlman of the Jayhawks. Um, uh, Jeff Tweedy on some of it. Um, different drummers. We had um, most recently our drummers, really Jody Stevens from Big Star. Before that, um, we had, uh, as far as for people who would know them, I'd say Chris Mars from The Replacements played with us for a while. And before that, I think our first drummer was Dave Perner of, of Soul Asylum. It seems to be a new trend where a lot of bands are all teaming up together or artists are teaming up together, sort of like packaging some big movie with a bunch of you know stars. Uh, and 
I am trying to figure out if I want to do a, you know, a little solo project coming up. Um, but I also feel like I would be like competing against myself in my band, you know, <laughs> like I have this, this fear that like, well, are the songs going to be really that different? You know, do you ever feel like you're competing against yourself or is it a completely different part of your brain when you write for other groups and other artists? Cause you've written for the Dixie chicks, you've written for, you know, Chris Thiele, you know, is it a totally different part of your brain? Yeah, because you are, when you're talking about co-writing or you're talking about solo records. I mean, when I make a solo, I, I've only made two. I just finished one and I feel embarrassed I haven't done more. Um, no, I don't feel, I feel like, I always feel like there's enough songs that uh, I'm not going to um, shortchange the band if I make a solo record. And it's, and I get to do something that maybe I wouldn't do with the band, like a little more synthesizer or drum machine or something. I can uh, experiment a little bit more. Um, when a co-write, it's a different part because you just go into it and you say, "This isn't just about me." And it's 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 a if you you're hopefully with the right kind of people. If you're with a, somebody you respect or trust, it's a beautiful thing. And especially if you're writing for somebody else their record and trying to channel what they do you 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 have to give up part of yourself and you and it's kind of this massage where you keep um it going even if you're not sure if you like what they're saying doing and but then you let them in and they let you in and next thing you know you come around and go you know it is better what, what, what we did together than if i would have done it myself the best thing about co-writing is that there's a deadline i mean you got to cut you got to do it and you got to finish it or you, you know, when you write on your own, it's like, well, I'll finish it later or I'll come up with some more ideas and maybe I'll get around to writing the lyrics. So that's one thing I like about co-writing it really. And I haven't done a lot of it in a while, but you really kind of say, let's finish this uh, because we only have four hours to write this song. So, and you know, your relationship with, uh, you know, Mark Olson is one that is, had its ups and downs and you know you guys are sort of the foundation of the group and he sort of comes in and out throughout time um and you guys have done sort of duet tours together right how has that relationship progressed throughout the years it hasn't and uh we don't uh speak and he isn't the i disagree with you i think the basic the band was not just me and him it was mark perlman and Norm Rogers at the time and Karen Gropberg, Tim O'Regan. I mean, it's, it's, we're a band. We're not, we're not, and he and I were just, uh, I, I think he's fantastic. I think he's super talented, but we don't work together and we never will. So I'd rather not talk about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing, I think, throughout time how, you know, relationships creatively change and personally change. And I, I, People I, change. I'm always yeah. amazed. People yeah. change. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can and sometimes I ask? You have to move on. Yeah. You have to move on. Yeah, I know. And and people don't want you to. They want to. They want things to be like how they remembered it, or, or be nostalgic about things. And sometimes it's just people change and dynamics change, and that's fine. But people try to hang on to the past and. Um, if they don't like what I'm doing now without them, they don't have to listen, you know, but that's fine. They don't, it's their choice. I have no problem with it. I want to just ask if, uh, one more question about some of the songs on this upcoming record. 
uh, XOXO uh, because you know I think it really is a testament to your guys' longevity and, and your renewed sense of collaboration within uh, the main group. And you guys are sharing lead singing um, duties. And the core group is 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 really Perlman, Karen Grudberg, and Tim O'Regan, right? Tim O'Regan, yeah. Is there a song that you're particularly proud of on the new record where you guys all really sort of found something special together? I mean, the first song, This Forgotten Town, I suppose, is uh, where we exchange vocals within the song. Like, I sing the first verse, Tim sings the second and third, I sing the last one, Karen's singing harmony with Tim, I'm singing harmony with Karen, um, which is sort of the the band, you know, the the Robbie Robertson, Rick Danko, Manuel, et et al. um, vibe of of switching vocals, which I thought was... uh, was a, was a cool thing to do. Yeah, and I think that song really symbolizes what I love most about the Jayhawks because it has these roots elements, but you guys are killing it on the electric guitar solos. It feels like maybe a lost Doobie Brothers tune, <laughs> almost. Funny. For me. Never heard that one. But also, like, the bass that comes in feels almost Motown-ish, you know? So it, it, oh, yeah, it, it has so many, so many great rich. elements of a... Of, uh, of American music put together but also uh, has this emotional core you know and, and and it really has some deep there's some deep lyrics you know about you know when we were young we were judged by the choices that we made you know mm-hmm. living in a makeshift town couldn't find money for the wind do you believe in kingdom come and the promise of What, uh, what song would you like to play us out with? Well, I could play Living in a Bubble or Bitter Pill. Do you have a prefer- preference? Up to you. Well, because it's timely, maybe I'll do Living in a Bubble. And uh, cool. I have to tune up a second, okay? Okay. Let me get a little swig of water here. Signal on the morning train I'm alone with my thoughts As they run through my brain Big brother's got a hold on me And I never know who to believe Living in a bubble In and out of time I stick my head out Every once in a while Life is full of trouble Bubble 
office full of trouble What am I to do? Just another day at the zoo Trusty cell phone is always in reach Hear the hum of the highway Pretend it's the waves on the beach Living in a bubble In and out of time I stick my head out Every once in a while Life is full of trouble What am I to do? Just another day That I'll try to get through in a bubble in and out of time I stick my head out every once in a while Life is full of trouble What am I to do Just another day at the zoo There you have it Big thanks to Gary Loris of the Jayhawks for talking to me from Minneapolis. And uh, you could tell that this was recorded several months ago because we didn't even get to go into what was really happening all around him in Minneapolis after the George Floyd killing. It's amazing how one event in one city can change the whole world and set something into motion that we never thought was possible. And while the mass protesting may have died down for now, there are still so many things we need to be aware of. And why am I talking about this on a music podcast? Well, my wife works for a local NPR affiliate, and one of her friends, her co-workers, who's a reporter, was doing her job. And by that, I mean she was reporting on what was happening in her community. She saw the police knocking a man to the ground and arresting him outside of a news conference. She began filming with her cell phone. The police then charged her. This is a woman who's five foot one or less. They knocked her to the ground, five of them, and broke her phone. She courageously kept filming. And she kept filming as she was screaming that she was a member of the press. She had credentials around her neck, and it did not matter. They knocked her down and arrested her for obstruction of justice anyway. And while I love telling you about the musicians that I've fallen in love with and their music and how it's changed my life, we need to stay aware about the things that are taking down our communities. Making music and art and supporting music and art is not enough to keep our democracy in place. If you're not registered to vote for November, please go to vote.org and do that right now. Look at who's running in your local race. Look at the congressmen and the senators who represent you. Find out if there's an election coming up for the judge, for the sheriff. These are people who matter in your community. We're always obsessed with the actors and the musicians and the celebrities of our time. But this fall, let's look at who really represents us and who we're voting for and why. 
we have to start asking ourselves, what can we do to help right now? Instead of just donating to your favorite songwriter or artist online, maybe look at what they care about, the grassroots projects that they're championing. Color of Change, for example, is something that Dust Bowl Revival is championing through our Sway at Home virtual music fest. And I really recommend you check out this thing called Movement Voter Project. If you go to movement.vote, you can check out how they are raising funds to help lift up local organizations that help candidates win in crucial swing states. This matters, folks. I really hope you check this out. Anyway, that's enough soapboxing for me. You can go to thebluegrasssituation.com to see the whole network of podcasts they're bringing you, including a brand new one called Harmonics with Beth Bears. She talks to celebrities and artists from around the world. And if you want to support this podcast, you can give at PayPal, znlubiton at gmail.com. Go to theshowontheroad.com for our newest podcasts. And if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, give us a review, send it to a friend. It would mean a lot. The Show on the Road is written, edited, and hosted by me, Zach Lupatin. We are on the BGS Podcast Network, and every Wednesday we will bring you new episodes. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you on the trail. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.